grande que el templo. Si ustedes supieran lo que significa, lo que digan ustedes es misericordia. Do not suppose I will come to bring peace, but not a sword. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity. Love of truth and justice. Love of the Father. A real revolutionary will die for love. All right, I want to welcome you to the uh, revolution. I'm Pastor Tim. Tonight, it's Easter. Actually, it's not Easter. It's the week after Easter. But I'm welcoming you with a toast. So you ready for this? You got to guard your eyes because we're going to kind of twist this thing. Careful. I know the kids in the front row are like, whoa, whoa, there it is. There, look at this. Boy, now it is official. It is official. I'm making a mess and the, the media team is going to be going crazy here. I don't have enough for everybody. So let me, uh, here, I'll give a toast to someone in the front row. Come on up here, Pastor Rich, a toast to the revolution. Enjoy. And some of you are like, oh, that, well, that is good. That's actually, take a minute here. That's fizzy. Some of you are like, uh, now I've seen it all. And if you haven't been scandalized in church, you're going to be today because Jesus' first miraculous sign, which is my favorite miracle, and it's not just because it involves wine. And this, this of course, isn't even wine. This, is, this isn't even like a, a cheap champagne. This is like a sparkling cider. But if you're new to church or figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, you might be surprised to know this. Jesus loved parties. More than that, the first miracle that he performed at the wedding reception in Cana served one purpose. When that party went flat and the, and, and the wine ran out, Jesus stepped in and used his creative powers to keep a party going. But my guess is if you're like me, you never really understood why turning water into wine was so revolutionary to people who experienced it. This series is, uh, is built on a single premise that Jesus didn't come 2,000 years ago to start a new religion, but instead ignite a spiritual revolution that continues to this day. Without rival, Jesus is uh, the most influential person to walk the face of the earth. That's just kind of standard hands down. And so you kind of have to ask, when a revolutionary leader, he's launching like a global movement, I want you to think about this, you know their first public act before everybody who's watching has to have special meaning. When you're stepping onto the world stage to let them know precisely what your mission to earth is all about, you need a symbolic sign that kind of captures exactly what the movement's purpose is. I want you to think about this. The American Revolution began with a very symbolic act. Patriots, what they do? They dumped tea into Boston Harbor as a symbol of revolt against British taxation. You still see tea bags wave today, kind of the Tea Party Revolution. The sexual revolution in the 60s, you know, they burned bras as a symbol of kind of, you know, overthrowing male, you know, oppression and social constraints. And Jesus inaugurated his revolution by turning water, simple water, into wine as a symbol of his revolt against organized religion? What? <laughs> Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to John chapter 2. This is fascinating. I think you're going to see it in a new way, even if you've uh, looked at this passage before. And I'm going to suggest to you that with his first miracle, Jesus really signaled the end of religion as we know it. And I believe what he introduced, you're going to see this in a minute, what I'm calling, he introduced a brand new radical spirituality. That's what I'm calling it because, again, people think they associate Jesus with religion, but he introduced a radical spirituality of his day that contrasts with the organized religion 
we know. And if, if you're like, well, I don't love organized religion, I always tell people, you'll love liquid. We are disorganized uh, religion here. But take a look at this. Um, uh, there, there are alternatives. And before you do, take a look at this painting. This is a fascinating painting by the Italian artist Paolo Veronese in 1500s. It depicts what appears to be a raging house party. You've got people dancing. They're hanging out of the windows. They're making music. They're raising glasses filled with wine. It's a wedding reception. Look carefully behind the musicians, and you'll see it seated at the center table is who? It is Jesus at the center of this party. Now, if you see next to him, they, there's a woman, and she has a halo too. That's Mary, his mother. Uh, Veronese was a Catholic artist. But notice, out of 130 raging kind of party goers, there's only one who's looking directly at you, directly at the viewers, if he's trying to tell us something. Now, why is that? Let's read this together and find out. John chapter 2, I'm on the first verse. It says this, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, you should know this. Weddings in Jesus' day were week-long festivals. Typically, the whole town was invited to the banquet. So engaged couples, if you're trying to whittle down your guest list, imagine this, the whole town. And if you've been to a four-hour reception like that, it's tedious. Try a whole week. So this was a huge party. Jesus was there. Jesus loved parties for one reason. He loved people. He loved being with people. And if there was a party, he was there with his disciples. When a major crisis hits, look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. It's like she had seen some things happen in the past. Just listen to him. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for, what's the phrase here? Ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said this, I love this, verse 10, he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap stuff, <laughs> after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved what? Saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Notice that John doesn't just call it a miracle. He says it was a sign. In other words, Jesus was trying to communicate something symbolically. That's what a sign is. This is the first of seven signs that John records in his gospel. And I have to admit, I've just always kind of enjoyed this miracle because I always feel there's something kind of a little bit irreverent about the Son of God saying, to announce my arrival on the scene, <laughs> I am summoning the divine powers of the universe that are literally in my hands to, boo, more joy juice for everybody. You know, it's kind of this, this weird moment. And I never really understood how subversive this sign was at first glance. I mean, you assume Jesus might do something a little bit more religious, like uh, raising the dead to life, how about that? Or walking on water, something that like, makes headlines like, didn't Jesus come to heal, like give someone back their sight? But curiously, Jesus inaugurates this kingdom revolution with none of the above. Instead, he performs what appears on the surface, just real candidly, appears to be a party trick. Turning what, really, right? Turning what, now for, water into wine. Why? Is there something deeper at work? What is this revolutionary in the center of this picture, this celebration trying to tell us? 
He's making an incredible distinction between religion and radical spirituality, which on the surface, you may look at this and you may say, well, aren't these synonymous? Aren't these kind of the same thing? They are worlds apart at their core. Here's the deal. If you are hosting a party, you definitely want Jesus on your guest list. (laughs) I mean, this is a killer wedding gift. These are six jumbo jars full of the best wine going. Verse 6 says that they held between 20 and 30 gallons. I actually did the math of this. 20 to 30 times 6 equals 120 to 180 gallons of party fuel. Now, this would be the equivalent of about 2,000 of these 4-ounce glasses, okay? This is some party. Look at the painting. Towards the bottom right, you'll see a man pouring wine from a big stone jar jug. You see some servants offering it, people holding up to look at it. So everyone's kind of, no one's drunk. You just see people like enjoying this feast in moderation. But Jesus is at the center of it, and he's like, I'm coming to tell you what this revolution is about. He's like, it's not just about refreshment for thirsty guests. Remember, verse 11 calls it a sign, and and, and there's more going on here. As author Brooksy Cavey writes in his excellent book, The End of Religion, he says, think about the radical symbolism involved in this event. The idea of miraculously turning water into wine into something completely different wasn't brand new, actually. We we look at this and we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. It wasn't amazing for Jewish people. As Jews, they would have been familiar with the story of Moses who performed a similar miracle to set the Jewish people free from slavery in Egypt. Do you remember this? He turned water in the Nile River into blood. Yeah, it was one of the key miracles in the Old Testament, and it was a symbol of God's judgment. He said, let my people go, Pharaoh, and then Charlton Heston threw down his rod, you know, and he turned the Nile River into blood. So Jewish people would be familiar. They'd be like, ah, water into blood. And then Jesus all of a sudden steps up here in the New Testament, and he uses his power to turn water into wine, which is a symbol all throughout Scripture of God's blessing and joy. On one hand, you have 2,000 years of judgment, and here you come Jesus saying, I'm turning that over and declaring it is a time for joy, jubilee. That's how the Bible regards wine. Something, in other words, is changing between here. Both Moses and Jesus offered people freedom from whatever enslaved them, whether it's Egypt on one hand or if it's sin and selfishness on the other. And Moses achieved that freedom by demonstrating God's anger and his judgment. And all of a sudden, Jesus offers it by showing God's mercy and his grace. By the way, you ever feel like sometimes there are two different gods in the Bible? You ever feel that way? People ask me that all the, the time. They say, I read the Old Testament, and it seems like God is angry, and he's punitive, he's like throwing lightning bolts and pouring out his wrath. And then when you turn to the New Testament, it's like Jesus has his arms around, you know, Pharisees or prostitutes and, 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 and pagan partygoers, and people are like, I'll take Jesus. Uh, but they're not contradictory at all. God responds to humanity at two different stages in their development. If you think about this, you look at any parent's relationship with their kids. Their parenting style changes radically as the kid matures. Hopefully at some point a a child will learn to respond less out of fear of punishment, as in the Old Testament, more out of love for the Father, as Jesus did in the New. But what most people don't understand here is that Jesus wasn't just adding to religious tradition through this miracle. He was completely subverting it. Did you notice the scandal? Verse 6, you kind of picked up on this. Jesus doesn't have the wine served out of ordinary jars or even out of glasses. Rather, he commands his servants, take a look at this, to use the sacred containers set aside for a religious ritual. It says, verse 6 says, they were the kind the Jews used for what? Ceremonial washing. You remember this from our, probably from our Catholic series. 
One of the core traditions of the Pharisees was they regularly, ritually washed their hands. They dipped their arms, they dipped their hands all the way up to their shoulders at times, their body, as a way of symbolically showing a desire to remain pure from the sin of the world around them. So in other words, if you went to a party, before you go in, you'd have these stone jars at the entrance. So when you walk in, you say, oh, okay, I'm going to a party. I don't want to sin. I want to stay pure. And you would wash in front of everybody. It wasn't repenting. It was called prepenting. You know what I mean? When I was in my 20s, before we went out on Saturday night, my friends and I, we would prepent. Father, forgive us for what we're about to do, okay? And, <laughs> and the question is, why would Jesus do something so offensive? These are sacred jars used by the religious elite. I mean, this was probably a few days into the wedding. So there would have been plenty of empties around. There would have been jugs, jars, kegs, wineskins, whatever they'd been using, empties right there. And Jesus says, I'm going to use the religious icons. And suddenly we're faced with a very actually undeniable truth. To signal the beginning of his spiritual revolution, Jesus intentionally desecrates religious icons, sacred icons, symbols of the holy. He purposely chooses these, these jars as a way to sim challenge the system and he converts them from vehicles for a religious ceremony. We're going to go through these motions. We're going to do this and it's going to be the way that we show people what God's heart is like by staying pure into something used for celebration. Do you see something changing here? From judgment to joy, from ceremony to celebration. Jesus takes holy water and turns it into wedding wine. He moves us from legalism into life, from ritual into relationship. Look at this. They all start with the first letter, so you know it must be from God. Amazing. Yes, if those of you taking notes appreciate that. You're like, oh, I love that. Jesus seems to be saying that his message of radical spirituality, this, this radically accepting love, can't be contained by traditional religion. New wine needs what? New wineskins. Now just back up for just a minute and look at the list here. Look at the contrast. On the one hand, you have 2,000 years of religious tradition focused on judgment, ceremony, and ritual. And on the other hand, here comes Jesus inaugurating a radical spirituality that focuses on joy, celebration, and relationship. Let's say you were a blank slate. You are investigating faith for the first time, and maybe some of you are. Give it a choice between the two, what would you choose? Would you rather be religious or spiritual? Once again, we hit the streets of New York to see what the average person would say. Here's what they said. Hey, hey, Pastor Tom over here with Pastor Mike in New York City. What's up? And uh, we are asking people today, which are you, religious or spiritual, and why? Would you say you're more religious or more spiritual? Spiritual. 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 You... I make sure I stay balanced, and um, I think about my chakras. Are, are you more religious or spiritual? I go spiritual. Okay, and uh, what do you do to practice your spirituality? I don't. I'd go with the spiritual. Now, why is that? What makes you spiritual? Because uh, I believe in God, and organized religion is a bunch of BS. Spiritual, definitely. Now, how do you practice your spirituality? Going to the wilderness. We are religious. How so? What, what religion do you practice? We are Christian. You're a Christian. Anything wrong with being spiritual? No, I think it's not wrong. Religion and spiritual, it's just about the same. I, I, I knew you were a brother from another mother. I would say spiritual. I, I yeah, spiritual, hands down. Okay, now, question. What, what, anything wrong with religion? 
Uh, to quote Maynard, religion is the opiate of society. Religious or spiritual? Spiritual. Why? Religious. Religious. Anything wrong with being spiritual? No. Are you religious or spiritual? I would say spiritual. Me too. Spiritual. What's the difference? A religion is more organized, an organized religion, whereas spiritual, you don't have to belong to a church and you believe in something greater than us. Had to have made all of this. Right. Religious or spiritual? Spiritual. And why is that? What, what, what makes you spiritual? That I believe in things, but I don't believe in organized religion. So I believe in the power of people and... Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Anything wrong with religion? No. Nothing wrong with religion, but you just choose to be spiritual? Yeah. Gotcha. Thanks a lot. Religious or spiritual? Spiritual. Because I don't have any specific constraints as to what I believe. I have my own opinions. I know there's something. I just don't know what it is. I know there's something, I just don't know what it is. How would you describe yourself? Would you say you are more religious or spiritual? It may not surprise you to learn we are living in a culture where more and more people are moving away from organized religion and all that it represents, judgment, ceremony, ritual, and gravitating towards an unnamed spirituality that exists outside of traditional religious structures. And that spirituality may be vague at times. It may be doing yoga or joy or you know, serenity, something that connects them with the divine. There's a book titled The Spiritual Revolution, and this documents the cultural shift. The subtitle says it all. Why religion is giving the way to spirituality. And by religion, what really they mean is any of those traditional structures, those, those traditions, those ceremonies, those rituals that we typically look to to connect us to God. And when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about these non-traditional practices. And you may think, well, that's the problem with this world. People are giving up the God of the Bible for yoga and for Oprah, you know. Or maybe you grew up religious like me. Because I went to church where we were taught to read the Bible. We memorized verses every week. We went to religious camp in the summer. But at some point, honestly, it was right about when I was in high school, ready to graduate, we kind of looked around and we said, um, it seems, I don't know, kind of, sort of dead. There's got to be more to faith than this. And see, that's the problem. Religion and ritual can never sustain a relationship. It's impossible. It can initially connect you in some way, but by nature, the repetition makes it mechanical, which drains it of life. Have you ever had that in a relationship? Oh, I see people nodding. Thank you, Tom and Janet. My wife could tell you a story about this too. Uh, I was dating Colleen in college at the time, and I was living off campus. I discovered the Quickie Mart there. It's like the you know, little quick check kind of thing. Across from my apartment, every Thursday, they sold half a dozen roses for five bucks. And I was a busted junior in college, but I wanted to impress Colleen, so I would go in and, what can you mean, five bucks, six roses. The only thing is they were orange. I don't know why, go figure. It wasn't that they were old, they were just orange roses, but I thought, oh, it's kind of, you know, exotic, you know? And so uh, I brought these orange roses over to Colleen. Now, keep the, the back text of this thing. I brought these orange roses to Colleen, and I said, sweetheart, these are for you. And she was like, are you serious? And I, and I didn't buy a Hallmark card. I hand-wrote a note. I said, each of these roses is orange, very unique, just like you. Here are six ways I think you're unique. And now some of you, the women are going, oh, what a sweet thing. It was a sweet thing, and she loved it. She's like, thank you very much for that. And, uh, and of course, I'm, you know, it was great. We had a great night. Now, if I'm being honest, like a guy, what, what happens after that works once? 
well, I'm going to play that play. I'm going to play that play again, right? Right out of the playbook. The next Thursday, six roses, five bucks, and I'm coming back from class, and I'm like, ding! I got my other five. I get the you know six roses, ding dong! I give her these orange roses. She's like, oh, how unique, you know, kind of kind of moment. She's like, oh, thank you. Now I didn't write a note this time, but I said, oh, but you know they are unique like you. I'm glad you liked them last week. She's like, oh, okay, no, they're great. I'll uh, these are still live. I'll put them in the same thing. Now <clears throat> this was this was my first girlfriend, so. Uh, I decided the following Thursday, if two is excellent, three is a charm, right? I get the six roses again, only this time they were a little bit yellow. And I bring them over to her apartment, ding dong, ding dong, she's not home and everything, and the roommate answers and goes, oh, hi, oh, you brought the roses. I said, yeah, they're for Colleen. I was trying to surprise her. She goes, wow, what a surprise. And uh, she goes, you could just leave them there. So I left them at the door, actually, for her because she had a meeting going on, I left them there, and I'm coming out the next morning in my apartment, walking by my girlfriend's apartment, and I see the roses just sitting there, wilting. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I know, exactly. It had that effect. It was amazing because, uh, I want you to think about this just for a minute. Imagine the following Thursday, I didn't get the hint, and I said, well, it really worked the first time, showed her my love, so I'm going to do it this next Thursday. Ding dong, leave them outside. Ding dong, leave them outside. Ding dong. And after a while, 36 roses piled up after two you know, months. But at some point, that gets stalkerish, doesn't it? Uh, it's actually a little bit weird because it becomes sort of robotic, almost like a ritual. And that's where the romance died. That's where a relationship goes flat because what initially, originally connected you was a sign of your passion, your love, becomes a ritual. Your heart is no longer in it, day after day, the same flowers, and all of a sudden the joy gets sucked right out. Here's my question. Do you think sometimes God feels that way about us? Think about it. When we try to connect to God, we love you, God, day after day, week after week, singing the same songs, going through the same rituals, customs, and routines. Maybe, at first, they connected us to the heart of God, and they were a symbol of our love and our passion, but somewhere along the way, does it get weird? has actually become kind of robotic, kind of going through the motions. That's the problem. Do you get this? With religion. No rituals and routines can ever sustain a life-giving relationship. Nobody wants her husband to come home and say, hey, I got you flowers because it's Thursday and it's my duty. How romantic? Not. It's actually a sign we don't care anymore. We're just checking it off the list. A woman wants to know our heart's in it. Newsflash, so does God. Do you see this? You're getting this. This is a challenge for every one of us, especially if you're a long-time Christian. Are you willing to learn from a Jesus who says this world needs less religion and more wine? More, oh, I know, more relationship, less rules and rituals. See, by nature, honestly, when he performs this miracle at a wedding, Jesus is saying, you know what? God wants to relate to you actually in the most intimate way possible, as a bridegroom to a bride, one flesh. And people were like, what? We're used, in the Old Testament, we stood away from mountains because if we went too close, it'd strike us down. And now you're saying, come close and be one flesh? In the Old Testament, God gave the law. It was called the Torah, and that people understand what it meant to live a holy life. And if you follow the Torah, you're acceptable to God. But time and again, people fell short. They fell away, or worse, they kept the rules and performed their rituals and fell in love with them as if that was the point. And Jesus said, that old covenant, that old way of relating to God. It's dried up. There's no more holy water left in a jar, enough to make you clean. It's not sustainable. It's dead religion. I'm bringing new wine to this relationship. I'm going to liven this up. 
Because when you go directly to God through me, you will be filled to the brim, overflowing in a way you never thought possible. You think it's good now. But instead of giving you external rules and rituals to follow, check it, I'm putting my spirit inside of you. You think you've had spirit, small s inside of you? I'm putting my Holy Spirit in you. And in the Old Testament, people had hard hearts. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm bringing a heart softener. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's going to write my laws on your heart. And instead, you're going to relate to God, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. Not out of law, but out of love. Can you imagine being in love? Does it freak you out when people say, I'm in love with God? Man, I love him so much. What Jesus has done for me. Jesus never once in the whole Bible uses the word religion to describe what he came to establish. Not once. Nor does he ever ask people to join a specific institution or an organization. When he talks about connecting with God, he consistently talks about having, here's a word for you, faith. Look at verse 11. Can we read this? Take a look at it. It says his disciples put their what? Their faith in him. This is a key word in the message of Jesus. He's always talking about, put your faith in me. Believe in me. Trust in me. It's a relational word. Trust me. You actually see this at weddings. What happens if you go to a wedding? You see two people, what do they do? They're putting their faith in one another. They make a pledge. They make a promise. Till death do me part, I trust this person with my life. I have faith in them. That's why we actually celebrate the relationship. That's why we pop the bottle. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to invite you into that, not this. It's a relationship of trust, and it leads to joy. It's funny. Sometimes people ask me, they say, so pastor, um, do you believe all religions lead to God? I say, no. In fact, I believe no religions lead to God because religion is outside-in attempt to earn God's approval. It let me make this, get this thing to people. It's cheap wine, guys. It is, organized religion is the equivalent of drinking this. Who's seen wine in a box? Who's, raise your hand, acknowledge it, repent right now. That's confession time. Look at you. Thank you, Gene Farrell. Cheap religion is literally this. In other words, religion always gives you a hangover because that's what the equivalent you're drinking of. Some of you laugh. Okay, the first time I had wine in the box, I'll just acknowledge this. Uh, my, my family, we did not have wine in the house, nothing uh, alcoholic fermented growing up, nothing. And then Colleen, I, uh, I visit her grandfather in Florida when we started getting uh, uh, serious, and he had a tradition. He was Italian, old school, Sicilian. We, after we would go to the beach, we'd come a day off the fishing boat with pops, and he'd say, Tim, would you like a glass of Zinfandel? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And all of a sudden, he goes to the refrigerator and pulls out a box. A bo- I was like, a wine comes in a box? I never even heard of such a thing. And he pours this thing, and I oh, thank you very much. And I remember taking it and kind of sniffing it, and it's like, this is kind of weird, because I thought wine was bitter, but this tastes like a Jolly Rancher in 7-Up. <laughs> it literally, I was like, this is like fruit punch. And, you know, I had a glass, had another. I didn't, I didn't get, you know, drink too much, but the next day I woke up feeling this like dry mouth, like someone, I just ate a thing of sand and, 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 and this headache, and I was like, that's so strange. It tasted really good going down, but why do I feel so awful the next day? That's religion. It's cheap wine. It looks good on the outside, but the next day you wake up with a headache. If you keep the rules and you become proud, you become a headache to other people. That's why religious people never get invited to parties, because they're self-righteous and they're arrogant. They're holy religion. No one wants religious people around. They're no fun. If you fall short, though, and you're religious, 
You constantly walk around under this low-lying cloud upset of anxiety and guilt because you know God's like angry at you. He's angry. He's mad. He's judging me. This is what Jesus is exposing here. He says, it never goes anywhere. I've come to bring new life, the real joy, the real deal, something that is richer, is deeper, it matures, just like your relationship to me. I'm here to expose the cheap wine of religion and offer you new wine. Wine that is not cheap. Where's my markers? I'm getting all flabbergasted here. Not cheap wine. Look, people, I'm here to give you costly wine. Have you ever seen expensive wine? Get ready to ooh and ah. Check this action out. This is the, oh, you didn't even see it. Don't ooh yet. Box of wine, check out this baby. This one right here, I'm going to be very careful. It's a 1989 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. I don't know what it means. It just means it's expensive. It's worth $2,000. We have a wine connoisseur in our church, and I was asking him about it. He said, yeah, he goes, this is a Bordeaux from France. He goes, I bought this at a charity auction a few years ago. This cost a little less than 20 bucks. Add a couple of zeros to this one. Why? He said, well, there's a number of reasons why. He said, first off, 1989, it was an exceptional year for harvest. It is excellently well-aged, and it has very few tannins. That's the thing that gives you a headache. He said, I've been keeping it for a special occasion, so if you wouldn't mind not opening it on stage, that'd be great. <laughs> and so I made that promise to him, and he said, please also don't shake it. I notice you kind of do your thing with your props. So I'm going to leave this here very delicately, and Jesus is like, religion is like this, and the Holy Spirit's like this. And this is what I came to give you. Religion is wine in a box, but I want to give you the good stuff. When you come and taste what I'm offering you, you will quickly realize it's better than anything you've ever had before. I love how in verse 10, did you catch this? The master of the banquet comes over to Jesus. I love this. He says, kind of whispers, I imagine whispering, hey, uh, Jesus, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap stuff after the guests had too much to drink. And you've saved the what? The... Best till now. It's kind of funny. They use party tricks in the first century like this. Remember, this is a week-long party, so after a day, basically they'd wait until the guest taste buds were dulled when they bring out the cheap stuff. And he says, Jesus, though, you did the exact opposite. You saved the best till last. This is actually where we get that phrase, you've saved the best till last. Because the wine offered by Jesus was something completely different. He came in the New Testament saying, come all you who are thirsty, I'm going to give you something to drink. And it's not going to give you this religious hangover, it's going to give you organic joy, this spirituality, this faith. It's not dependent on a religious system that's outside in, but inside out relationship with God. It's kind of odd, there's a very short list. Wine is one of the few things in life that the older it gets, the better it becomes. Think of how many things in life have that. As wine ages, matures, it becomes richer, deeper, heavier, kind of like the best of relationships. Have you ever seen a married couple? A married couple has been married, you know, 40, 50 years. At the wedding, they, they put their faith in each other. They entered this covenant of one flesh, saying, I'm trusting you with my life. And then ultimately, their lives become so intertwined, it's like impossible to see where one begins and the other ends. They're one. They're connected. They're intertwined. They're intimate. There's a spiritual connection. And Jesus is like, that's what I've come to give you. A rich, full-bodied, passionate relationship. That happens when I pour my spirit into you. New wine. That's what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. The Holy Spirit leads us into freedom so that we're guided by love, not law. Ephesians 5.18 instructs this. It says, don't get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the capital S, spirit. 
And the idea that Paul's getting at is here, just, he's like, just as alcohol could control you, when God's spirit gets inside of your heart, he begins to affect your mind. Your thoughts will change. Your heart will change. Your passions, your desires will change. Your attitude changes. I change you from the inside out. It bubbles up. Jesus said, religion is not the way to God. God is the way to God. I'm the way to God. Look again at the man in the middle of this picture. Are you surprised to find Christ at the center of the celebration? Does his radical spirituality scandalize you? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through who? Through me. Could you believe in a Jesus who thinks our world needs less religion and more wine? Do you understand why religious people were scandalized by Jesus? Why they were like, what in the world? Author Dorothy Sayers writes this. She says, the people who hang Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. It's hard for us to imagine, guys, how scandalous the implications of Jesus' subversive miracle was. But to give you an idea of this, I'll tell you a little bit how the religious leaders probably felt. They probably felt like I did when I found Pastor Mike five years ago in a hot tub wearing his underwear. Just going to come out and say it. Uh, back when Liquid was meeting in an old church, we had a couple hundred people. We were using a baptismal pool. It was behind the choir loft. And you, what we had to do before the night before a baptism, we would have to fill that thing with a garden hose. So Pastor Mike drew the short straw. I called him up on his cell phone. He's like, he, I got his voicemail. He wasn't there. I was like, oh, I hope that thing's filled. I hope that thing's filled. So I go to this old church, 150 years old, tradition in white steeple. And I go in, and the sanctuary is completely dark, but I hear splish, splash, splish, splash going on. And I hear this giggling. (laughs) So I go through the choir loft, back around the corner, and there is Pastor Mike in his underwear in the baptismal pool. Boxer shorts, relax. Boxer shorts with three girls in their underwear. Now, these were his daughters. Relax. Relax there. Whoa, wow, pagan people. And it was hilarious because I think I was like, <gasps> and Mike came up and he was like, oh, and, you know, he just kind of went crazy and his girls did too. But he was there with his little girls because they were filling it and everything. And they were like, daddy, can we go in? Can we go in? And he said, yeah, well, we don't have bathing suits. And so they dove in and they were playing. They're like, come on, daddy, come on. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going. Okay, cannonball, you know, jumps into the baptismal pool. And I show up and honestly, I was like, dude, what are you doing? We have a ceremony tomorrow. This is a house of worship. Why are you wearing boxers? <laughs> I was scandalized, and I'm a non-traditional guy. On my way home, I actually called Colleen because I, like, I was like, I can't believe it. I'm going to believe what Mike did. That's probably an inch, an ounce of what the Pharisees felt when Jesus turned holy water into wine. But see, that picture of Pastor Mike, now that I'm a daddy, <laughs> I get it. I get it. That picture of him with his daughter's they're playing, they're having fun, they were actually just laughing, they were, you know, dunking each other, cannonballs, all that stuff. It's actually a lot closer to the true meaning of God's heart, isn't it? Most people think baptism is a religious ceremony, but the truth is at its core, it is a celebration of a relationship between a father and his child. He's crazy about you. Some of you have to get this. When God's love penetrates your heart, and you see how He accepts you when you are so busted up. It just does something to you, and all this stuff falls away. God is not just the ruler of the universe. He is the father of a family, and that's how he looks at you. Jesus called him Abba. He says, you can call him Abba. 
And he wants our relationship with them to be marked by love and joy. Joy is laughter. That's what the best relationships naturally generate. So the question is, if Jesus invites us to a spirituality that is guilt-free based on love, not law, that generates joy, not judgment and headaches, what does it cost? Because the headier the wine, the higher the cost. If you go to a wine store, this does cost about 12 bucks. <laughs> there are $20 bottles, there are $40, $60, etc. And then you have expensive vintages like this one that ages and actually gets more and more pricey. And the question is, what did it cost Christ to provide wine for, the, for his wedding? To turn a, a ritual into a relationship, a ceremony into a celebration. This was the first party that Jesus attended. The last party that he attended was the night that he, before he was crucified at the Passover party. And at that party, he raised a glass of wine and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, this new agreement, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink this anew in the kingdom of God. Almost as if he was making a toast. He said, I'll see you at the wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb, to which you're invited I'm the bridegroom, you are the bride. And here's what it costs me to win your heart. My life, my lifeblood. And he does this out of love. He said, I do, I lay down my life for you to wash you with my blood and make you clean. If you notice in this painting, look at the balcony right above Jesus, you'll see a few men butchering something there and art critics agree it's a lamb and you get the symbolism. On the cross, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of God. Notice how Jesus sits directly under the blade. And right above the blade, it kind of opens up into the heaven. And this is the artist's way of saying the sacrifice of Jesus opened up the way to heaven in a brand new way. He's the master of the banquet. He sacrifices his body and his blood is the wine and we are his bride. That's the relationship God invites you to taste. It is incredibly powerful to think that you are personally loved like this. See, folks, Jesus never taught that people become magically spiritual just by giving up on religion. <laughs> a lot of people call themselves spiritual as a way of saying, I don't do church or, or, or temple or mass or anything like that anymore. But being spiritual isn't defined by what you don't do. It's about what you do with Jesus. Our world is full of people who say, I'm a spiritual person. And the question is never, so are you spiritual? It's who are you spiritual with? Who are you in love with? Who are you in a relationship with? Who has changed your life because they've loved you? Is it an actual person? Or is it kind of a vague, generic, higher power? It's like people kind of... You ever see people on internet dating sites who, who describe themselves as, oh, I'm romantic. But they never actually get around to going on a date and being romantic with an actual living, breathing person. I'm a romantic? Yeah, how? Well, I like roses and long walks on the beach and Sandra Bullock movies. No. That doesn't mean you're romantic. It means you're sentimental. There's a big difference. One's a posture, what I hope to be. I hope to be spiritual. The other is what you are, defined by who you are in relationship with. Because you aren't religious, it doesn't mean you're automatically spiritual. So the question is for you, who are you spiritual with? Who, who, do, who connects you to God? Who do you believe is God? Who, who are you in relationship? Through Jesus, God's reaching out to every man and woman, inviting them to a romance. It's a relationship, guys, with a living, breathing, real person. Jesus, who's the real deal, he says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. That's the point. Faith is 
trusting a person. So if you kind of have a fuzzy spirituality, it's like, why not ditch the Pilates mat and try an actual person? There's more than cheap wine. He's like, I give my blood for you. I want to be intimate with you. I want to put my spirit inside of you. I want to live in you forever. Last week we saw Jesus' main message boiled down to one word. Remember that word? Repent. Rethink everything you thought you knew. I'm with you. I don't think church connects you either. I don't think reading certain things, I don't think going through certain motions is going to make you a better person. I'm going to have to change you from the inside out. Some of you here today, two groups of people, one group of you probably need to repent of religion because you have settled for and are practicing a very dry and lifeless system of man-made rules and practices that are mechanical. You know the law, but you lack love. You need a fresh filling of God's Holy Spirit in your relationship. Others of you, maybe it's time that you repent of your kind of you know, sentimental spirituality, which is a posture, I'm spiritual, but it's not personal. You need to rethink your worship of a, you know, kind of a higher power and consider the claims of Christ. You can reject Jesus, but you can't ignore him. He never claims to be just a teacher, a moral teacher. He says, I'm God in the flesh. What are you going to do with me? That's what he's saying. So let me leave you with a step if you want to kind of, you know, apply this to your life this spring. On May 2nd, some of you have heard, we are having our spring baptisms at all of our liquid campuses. And baptism, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just a religious ceremony. Maybe, maybe you experienced this as a child. Maybe like kind of you went through this ritual, everyone showed up, and then, you know, we were baptized or sprinkled, then you went out for cake after, and you had nothing to really do with it. It wasn't voluntary. It's a relationship. It's a celebration. That's what baptism is here at Liquid. It's a powerful thing if you've ever witnessed one. Who's been to one? Some, it's powerful. It's powerful. Some folks will tell you it was the moment where their faith literally came to life. Because as they went under the water, they were identifying with the burial of Jesus. I'm being buried to, dead to my old life. And when they were raised out of the water, they said, it's like I'm being raised and resurrected to a new life, washed clean and filled with God's Spirit. And when you see the faces and you hear the stories, you will see the power of Christ to revolutionize a life in every way. My name is Randy, and I started coming to Liquid around May. Um, my mom brought me here, and I was born and baptized a Catholic, and I never really went to church. When I began coming to Liquid, I started to actually understand the Bible and really, really just get it. In September, um, Pastor Tim led the salvation prayer and as well as my mom. I raised my hand. It, um, it wasn't at the same service, but we, we both experienced salvation in the, um, in the same form. My name is Marlene and I grew up going to the Catholic Church. Um, I suffered some really tragic losses in my family and I didn't understand. I didn't understand why, if God loves me, was this happening to me? So I pulled away from the church. I stopped believing and gave up on the Jesus thing. And several years later, I came to Liquid. And I was sitting at church one day, and the salvation prayer was off, and I raised my hand not completely understanding what it really meant. That day, something beautiful happened to me. My son Randy was sitting next to me and my husband Lou, and it was just unbelievable how 
you change. You change. I, I, I believed I believed that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalties for our sins. And when you believe something like that, just it's so beautiful. In September, Pastor Bill, during the flood kickoff, told everybody to take five minutes and choose a spot where you can be alone and just talk to God. And in those five minutes, I found my personal relationship with God. And as well as my mom, I left just a completely different person. And from then, my, my life has changed. Today, I'm getting baptized here at Liquid because I want to show the world and my family, my friends, how beautiful it is to have a relationship with God and that I have chosen Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to be baptized today at Liquid because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I want to show everybody how much of a beautiful thing it is to know God and love God and have a relationship with Him. My favorite part of baptisms are seeing the expressions on people's faces and there's one word for that. Joy. Celebration. Is that incredible? Folks, religion can never, ever produce that. That is the fruit of a relationship. That's the joy of knowing you've been accepted by God through Jesus forever. And when it happens, you are, you are filled with the choicest of wine, the Spirit of God himself. Acts 2.38 gives us command. It says, repent, rethink, and what? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to be baptized this spring. If, if you are a Christian and you haven't been, what are you waiting for? Can I just ask that politely? celebrate your relationship. That's literally what baptism is. It's a celebration of a relationship. If you're stalled, maybe you feel like your relationship needs a jump start, baptism is an act of obedience, okay? You can, you can count on God to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit. That is literally what the, the word says. So you sign up. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ yet, maybe it's time. Maybe this spring is that moment for you to repent and rethink your spirituality. Is it just possible that Jesus is offering you something better, deeper, richer than you ever have tasted before in this world? You can sign up to be baptized on May 2nd, actually, on liquidchurch.com. We're going to have five baptism parties at all of our campuses, hot tubs in each hotel. And my solemn vow to you before God is this, Pastor Mike will be wearing a bathing suit this time. So that's a good thing. Let's pray together and thank God for what he's doing. Father, I thank you so much. It's just refreshing, God to know that you didn't come to prop up a religious system that was creaking along, but to dismantle it and begin something brand new called the new covenant. Thank you, Jesus, that you sealed it in your blood. It was a covenant signed in blood, and that you give us fresh wine. You give us your Holy Spirit now to live. That power is far more than any of our promises to do better. It is the power of the living God inside of us. 
So I pray for men and women all across our campuses, Father, that they will be filled afresh with your spirit this spring. I pray that we'll see dozens and dozens of baptisms, Lord, and people who are returning back to the Father's heart, to the Father's home through Jesus Christ. And we pray all of that in the name of your child, our Savior and Lord. Amen.